Can you believe it's been 30 years already since the fall of the Berlin Wall? It is still the single most great thing that ever happened, I think, in German history. It still gives me goosebumps and my whole life depends on it because my whole life played out behind the Iron Curtain. Coming up, guides from Germany fill us in on the big anniversaries they've been commemorating this year. We'll also explore what Poland's port city of Gdansk has to offer as an up-and-coming visitor destination. So it's kind of the gateway to Poland, and that makes it very cosmopolitan, very historic. Or if you'd like to relax in a sunnier climate, try Arles. It's where the Impressionists captured the light and the spirit of the Provence region of southern France. A lifestyle, right? The laid-back, like maybe in southern parts of the United States. From Provence to pierogies and the big anniversaries in Germany, it's all in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. The first battles of World War II started in Gdansk, where Germany first attacked Poland. Forty-one years later, demonstrations in the same city in the shipyards started the end of Soviet communism. In just a bit, we'll see how today's Gdansk is a growing visitor destination. We'll also mark the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall and hear how Germany has changed since then. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with a look at the town Vincent van Gogh immortalized, Arles. It's an unpretentious, laid-back base for exploring the scenic Provence region of southern France. And it's where our guide, Nina Sefuzati calls home. Nina, thanks for joining us. Merci. Bonjour. Now, Nina, I believe you're Danish. Your name mm-hmm. Sefuzati. It doesn't sound Danish or French. At all. And you work in the south of France. <laughs> so what's your story? Well, I was born in Copenhagen, Denmark. Yeah. And then I, luckily enough, met this young French boy yeah. in... Um, Married him and actually moved to Avignon in France. And he is Sefuzati. He is the Sefuzati that I took. Is that yep. Italian? That is French-Italian, which is quite typical for because Provence. Because in that part of uh, France, there's a lot of Italian influence. A lot of Italian, yeah. There well, it's Spanish on one side, Italian from the other right. side, uh, immigrants from all over. So when people see your name, I just thought Italian, but people yep. in the south of France would, they, would think yep. very likely to be French. Exactly, yeah. because you do have a lot of the, those Italian immigrants and the names are just they're there. The, right? In the 19th century, different <gasps> uh-huh. parts in, in the area between France and Italy got to vote where would they stay as mm-hmm. Italy was uniting. Like and nice, uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, your area voted to stay with France mm-hmm. rather than join Italy. Now, we're talking about Provence. You know, there's famous books written that are so romantic, and Mm -hmm. all Americans just dream of going, having, you know, (laughs) a year in Provence or whatever. It's a little confusing to me because France has this situation like it's all Paris or the countryside. Mm -hmm. Exactly how do you define the region of Provence then? Well, that's the interesting thing, right? Because it it has become more a concept than anything else. What is Provence? Well, if you talk geographically speaking, where you have the Rhone River on the west and the... Lower Alps on the north and Italy on the east and Mediterranean on the south, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of what we think about when we say the south of France, uh-huh. except for the Côte d'Azur, yep, the French exactly. Riviera. Exactly. So there is the French Riviera and there is Provence. Mm-hmm. And when we think of Provence, I think of the Rhone River, mm-hmm. all that wonderful wine. I think of Arles, Avignon, mm-hmm. Nîmes, Aix-en-Provence. And what I think of mostly is this idea of à la Provençal, right? Uh, mm. Provençal. This is, what do we mean when something is... Even in France, if somebody says, oh, that's Provençal, that can be fashion, that can be 
cuisine? Or that could be it? a lot of different things, yeah. couldn't it? Put a lifestyle, right? A, a it's lifestyle. more the laid back, like maybe in southern parts of the United States. Yeah, we've got more that. It's, it is laid more back, laid back. The drawl, you have all of that, and and uh, Parisians are fascinated by it and have been for a very long time, right? That's but interesting. That, uh, in America, yeah. you've got this north south. Uh-huh. The southerners are more uh-huh. laid back. Uh-huh. In Italy, of course, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the north is subsidizing the south. In Germany, you've got in the that. world, isn't it? Provencal people are the cicadas. And the northern French are the ants, the hardworking, ah. no fun kind of people in the north. In the south, what do they do? Have a glass of wine, rub, have a their, fun. rub their legs together, yeah, and make a lot of noise. Together, yeah. Cicadies, Cicadies, right? That's yeah, a yeah. cricket. I think yeah. they say a cricket. It's like a cricket, yeah. yeah. So yeah. if I'm sitting in Provence, here's my image of Provence. Uh-huh. I'm sitting in a beautiful uh-huh. little town. I don't even care about the name. Cute little sleepy town. Plain trees providing shade as they have for generations. They've got a nice pastis, a nice mm-hmm. local aperitif, and I hear the chickadees. And also, when we think of Provence, we're thinking of uh, the garden, the market, mm-hmm. beautiful uh, produce, yep, wonderful the fruit salads, and the vegetables. vegetables. Yeah. That's very often what I tell people is that we're so privileged in that area because we have the fruit and the vegetables growing right outside our door. Ah. And, I mean, when you have a ratatouille, for instance, mm. you have the local... Ratatouille, that would be, yeah. like, we think that's like French, but it really is Provençal. It is more because it's the, the eggplant and the zucchini. and. I mentioned uh, pastis. Yeah. And uh, this is a challenge for a lot of American travelers, mm-hmm. not to order their favorite cocktail, you mm-hmm. know, but to um, become a cultural chameleon. I don't crave a pastis unless I'm in uh, the countryside of France, in the south, where people have that as part of the tempo of their day. It is. What is a pastis and what does that mean to the people of Provence? Well, it's actually this before lunch or before dinner drink. Uh-huh. It has that white color or transparent color when you get it from the bottle, right? Uh-huh. And then you pour water in it. And lots of people like two drops of water, but that's for not for beginners. Do not be shy about putting more water in it because right. we're all different and yeah. there are women, there are men, we know, you know. You have to like licorice and anise to, okay. to enjoy it. And it's quite strong, right? So <laughs> be careful with it. Yeah, you've got to be careful of <laughs> uh, because you could find In the yourself midsummer heat. Up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, just across the square, you might see some of the uh, older men playing mm, uh, petanque. Petanque, yeah. And that's, to me, a very Provencal thing. But it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because there's a funny story about how that version of the game was invented, where there was a gentleman sitting in a wheelchair, yeah. and the original game was actually jump three times and throw the ball. Like oh. you have bocce ball, right? Okay, you know, yeah. Like, he can't do that. So what he does... Well, he sits in his wheelchair and he throws. So now we have the pétanque, pétangue, feet together, Ooh. which means that you stand and throw. You don't need to be an you know, acrobat. Jump. And it's too hot in the south to jump three times. That's the other I, thing, right? You know, I'm very touched by that because <laughs> my father just passed away this last year. I and in his last did, months, yeah. in his mm. last months, we used to play pétanque mm. in the living room. Mm. And sitting in his chair, he could well, throw that go. in for a patonk ball. Go, yeah. And I didn't realize patonk was designed. Ketongi, yeah. 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 But so actually, it, then you have the, the second challenge in that yeah. version there. You're not jumping, yeah. and you're just throwing with one hand. What yeah. can you have in the other hand? What? A little pastis. A little pastis. It's a perfect, <laughs> uh, I wish I had planned or that. Or a glass of wine, yeah. you know, whatever you prefer. Right? Okay. But now yeah. you're playing your patonk, and, uh-huh. and you're with yeah. your, your grandpa, who's uh, sitting in a chair, and he can still play patonk. <laughs> And it's windy. I mean, mm. Provence is famous for its wind. Very famous. Infamous, I would say. Infamous, yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. because the Mistral. A lot of people get a little confused about it because there's been books written about right. it and there was a TV series. The Mistral is this wind that is both bad and good uh, because we are actually in a situation where it creates a dry climate. It changes yeah. away the yeah. clouds and pollution, right? Yeah. It's, it's oh, yeah. clear, clean 
And the Mistral, there's different kinds of wind. What distinguishes the Mistral? So it's a northern wind. Meaning it's coming from the north. Anything bad comes from the north when you live in the south, right? But this is a a little exception. (laughs) That's good. The Mistral also chases away humidity, right? So we have that clean blue sky and that incredible colors. Travel expert Nina Sefuzati has called the south of France her home for the last 30 years. She's our guide to Provence right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Phone number is 877-333-7425. And Matt's on the phone from Libertyville in Illinois. Matt, thanks for your call. Yeah, hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. I am lucky enough, our family is going to be taking a trip, and we're going to be spending about 10 days in France. So after a few days in Paris, we're heading down to Provence. And I guess my question is, with my daughters in tow, ages 7 and 10, are there certain cities that we shouldn't miss, like maybe Avignon or Arles or Nîmes? And also, if there's any kids-specific experiences that we need to look into. Nina, what's some good advice for a a family with uh, a couple of uh, smaller kids? Well, I would say what in Avignon, for instance, you're passing through Avignon, obviously there's the quite impressive castle, which is at the Pope's Palace, right in the middle of Avignon. And it has a very good high-tech kind of mm -hmm. uh, tablet that you tour it with, Mm -hmm. and there's very likely a a children's version of that. Exactly, there's a treasure hunt. Yeah, the French are so good Uh at making their historic sites student-friendly and child-friendly with techy little tablets and apps and so on where the kids can make it a a treasure hunt. So I would do that in Pope's Palace and with the version that is... For children throughout the Pope's Palace. You learn about the Pope's at you the same time. You can kayak under the Pont du Gard. You can. Ah, <laughs> that's, that's a the, great thing to do. <laughs> and you can teach your kids Roman history as they're kayaking down the... Is well, that, isn't that it's incredible when you're in the kayak is yeah. that you, you drive up to a certain point and you kayak and then you have that moment of you can picnic by the, the banks of the river oh, of can. the Gardon that the Pont du Gard crosses. And you can wear your denim pants in Nîmes. Because... And what would you tell them? <laughs> well, because in Nîmes, if you think about the name Nîmes, and you take the word denim, that the pants are made of, right? Ah, so that's so, the fabric de Nîmes. It's the, de Nîmes, from it's the Nîmes. It's fabric yes, exactly. from Nîmes, denim. Um, yeah, and then they say <laughs> that the word jeans is because it was essentially, right? Denim was essentially yeah. made for ships and sails. Yeah. And what was the, one of the main harbors on that coast there was Genova. How do you say Genova in French? Gen, G-E-N-E-S. Is that where genes come from? Uh-huh. Genes. Well, it might made, just be a good story. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, there's a lot of ways to teach your kids. Yeah. And one good way to teach your kids when mm-hmm. you're traveling in Provence, mm-hmm. in Arles, there's a wonderful folk museum, the Arletan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in there, you can learn all about how people raised their kids uh, centuries ago. Opening up again, actually, after renovation, but probably not before the end of uh, this year. But you could go to the Roman History Museum in, in Arles and see that incredible barge that they now have found that, in the river. And, you know, because that is really interesting. And Matt, when you go to the Roman Museum, it's just on the edge of town in Arles, they've got all of the m- amazing Roman sites. They've reconstructed them in little models so you can envision how all of these engineering marvels of the Roman Empire, mm. like the 30-mile-long aqueduct that exactly. we think of at the yeah. Pont de Garde, yeah. how it was made. Yeah. All these mysteries. What a wonderful, wonderful history class. Are there outfitters, or is it easy to get in touch with people about kayaking at the Pont de Garde or touring the Luberon? Are those, is the infrastructure set up? It's easy for us to find people to help us with that? I would say it's very, very easy, Matt. You can, you can go to the tourist office. They can give you information. They're a very uh, helpful people, I have to say. That's a, one of the great highlights. Anybody can do it. Just a leisurely paddle down. You're mm. going down this amazing river, and then you're going under the, the most impressive Roman structure. And it's, it's the biggest Roman bridge, I think, anywhere, mm. that arch. Mm. Hey, Matt, another thing from a parenting and teaching point of view, when you go to Nîmes, I think the most 
beautifully preserved Roman building is there, Maison Carrie, and also the arena is there where they still have events, concerts and so on. And I was just there last year, and they're opening the new museum right it across opened, the street. Yeah. And mm. how is that? Because you live in, in, I, in this area. Yeah, Nima. I live close to Nîmes. Um, but Nîmes has this incredible history right there in front of us, the arena, Maison Carré, the temple. But then they opened up right this year this new Roman history museum, which mm. is obviously a little competition with Al. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's but very it's, and well, it's state-of-the-art. And, and it, it's a credible architecture from the outside and inside a beautiful collection. Matt, thanks for your call and have a great trip with your family. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Thank you all. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Provence with our friend and tour guide Nina Sefuzati. Nina, let's finish our discussion very quickly. I'm just going to say the name of the great city and you're going to say one sentence about mm-hmm. how you would describe it or what's mm-hmm. unique about that mm-hmm. city. Arl. Little town, beautiful atmosphere, Van Gogh. Van Gogh. <laughs> yes, that's the Van Gogh Trail. Yeah. Avignon. Avignon, popes, of course. For a century, there were two popes, and uh, one of them was in France, in mm-hmm. Avignon, and his huge palace is still there. Uh, we've talked about Nîmes. What about Aix-en-Provence? Ah, sophistication, money, beautiful women, incredible shops. <laughs> and one French word I know. Tendance. Tendance. What does that mean? Tendance, a trend, right? Trendy. Trendy. Yeah. Trendy tendance, yeah. All right. Exactly. Nina, thanks so much for joining You're us. And so I'll, welcome. I'll see you in You're the South so of France. Merci beaucoup. Au revoir. Au revoir. We'll sail into Gdansk after stopping in Germany. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. It was 30 years ago, November 9, 1989, when the world saw defiant protesters chipping away at the wall that divided Berlin for nearly three decades. The Soviet East and the oppressive government that enforced it were now history. We're joined now by three German tour guides from Berlin to tell us how their world has changed in the last 30 years. Holger Zimmer, Carolina Marburger, and Torben Brown. Take your calls in just a bit at 877-333-7425. But let's start with another big anniversary Germany has been celebrating this year. It's 100 years since the founding of the Bauhaus Art School. Its influences on modern design remain all around us today. At least that's what I'm told. Holger, can you explain to us what Bauhaus is all about? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a concept that was kind of new at the time. And it really also comes, I mean, they opened it, uh, they opened shop in April 1919 in Weimar, like in a little tiny place, um, you know, in, in the middle of Germany as well. And it was kind of like after this tragedy of the First World War to rethink art, rethink crafts and try to bring things together. So it really was basically a school for having artists working together with craftsmen and influencing each other and trying to find new ways of design, new ways of building, of architecture. Because after World War One and the horrors of the Western Front and the battle in the trenches and all that, there was um, sort of angry, angst-filled expressionism but Bauhaus, I don't feel like that. Bauhaus is a new, fresh beginning. Simple, straight, um, you know, just kind of rethink everything and bring it down to the basics in a way. Yeah. Like, you know, new design, new forms of fonts and, and all, not just, you know, building houses, which Bauhaus kind of means, you know, Bauhaus. I, I think a modern, uh, square, practical, efficient yeah. architecture. But, but also like to rethink in like theater art. So they, they invented, they were working with photography, they were working with opera and new stage designs. So it was a quite an influential thing. And I think what people maybe don't really know, it's not just a German phenomenon because, well, 
it had, a, you know, the school was moved, it was changed, and then in the end, when it was in Berlin in the 1930s, the Nazis closed it down in 1933. And a lot of people who were teaching there, also were students there, would oh. emigrate uh, subsequently quite often to the States. And like, if you think about this, you know, Black Mountain College, that is something where a lot of people from the Bauhaus went. So there's a tradition that still lives on in actually in America, you know, of those people who have, with their influential new ideas, mm. new designs. Some people went to work for Disney later on, or some went to work for NASA. So it, there is an impact here in the States. So we're talking about Bauhaus, B-A-U-H-A-U-S. It started after World War I, 1919, closed down by Hitler in 1933. Carolina, if you're thinking about this centennial of Bauhaus and you're traveling, where would you best uh, learn about Bauhaus in travels in Germany? Well, as Holger already said, it is Weimar where it was born. Weimar um, is Weimar a small town near Berlin. Near Berlin, yes. Yeah, so it's uh, it's easy to reach, and that's where there will also be the Bauhaus Museum. So it's definitely worthwhile to go there to understand what Bauhaus is about. Many Germans get confused today because Bauhaus is also a handy market. So don't take that for Bauhaus. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute, so is, Bauhaus is like a 7-Eleven, like, you mean? Yeah, kind no, of. No, 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 Bauhaus store, is more like a where you... It's a hardware, hardware store. store. It's a hardware, hardware chain. Yeah. Oh, Thank okay. you. See, that's you where English leads me. Yes. Uh, so a uh, hardware store. So that's not the one. If you see a towering <laughs> above something with a big light, that's not the one we are talking about. It is the school that was founded in 1919, indeed. And I think in America, it's mostly Mies van der Rohe in Chicago that made it kind of famous here. Oh, okay. yeah. I think, I, I think that's worth, worth mentioning because uh, Holger alluded to it, but we live in a Bauhaus world, right? You go to any American city or an Israeli city, right? You go to Tel Aviv, right? This is inspired by this this Bauhaus school of architecture. Oh, okay, so it's born near Berlin yeah. and then and then uh, fled the country with Nazism like many things and it was inspired the next artistic movements in America and elsewhere and today we sort of don't recognize that the modern architecture we see has its roots in Bauhaus. All right. Also, um, this is the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. It's true. Big change for, for Germany and for the world. For sure. I think what we're going to face now is a rethinking of um, the relationship between East and West, which was like, you know, separate entities for so long, for yeah. decades, you know, different mindset, different kind of worldview, everything. And we kind of thought like, wow, now 89 comes, the wall comes down. Oh, we're all you know, unified and happy and together. But it's not really working like this. We really have to. There's a lot of voices now coming up from the former East and saying, listen, our lives have been shaken up big time. And, and let's let's recognize that. And it's worth noting that the the Berlin Wall now has been gone for longer than it stood, right? Mm. Ah, so uh, that's a that's a threshold, yeah. Yeah, that's a threshold, and that, that's something that I think makes us realize just a lot of time has gone by, right, since the Berlin Wall has come down, and we still face these challenges. That so it's are, a little more complicated than the euphoria that followed taking absolutely. it down and and the freedom. Now you're dealing with, uh, you know, sorting out the options that a society would have. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with three German historians and guides, Holger Zimmer, Carolina Marburger, and Torben Brown. We're talking about Germany. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Jim's calling in from Abilene in Texas. Jim, thanks for your call. Yes, yes. I was interested in the unification of Germany after 1990, what did the East and West Germans do right, and what did the East and West Germans do wrong to bring about the unification? I love that question, because it was a huge investment on the part of West Germany to, br to take in DDR. Uh, Carolina, when you look back 50 years later now, 
Did uh, West Germany do this right? Was it a good idea, or should there still be two Germanys? Well, maybe that is the wrong question. West Germany wasn't the single part of this, even though I think, for me, because I was nine when the war came down, it is still the single most great thing that ever happened, I think, in German history. It still gives me goosebumps, and my whole life depends on it, because my whole life played out behind the Iron Curtain when gone. So for me, I always like, you know, without this, my life wouldn't be the way it is today. So you grew up in... In West Germany, but everything after I went to Berlin to study at the East German University. I went to Budapest to start my PhD. Okay. It's all in my whole circle of friends is half, at least, East German or Eastern European. So my whole life wouldn't be the way it is today. So for me, I'm the most grateful. However, today, about a generation in, we realize that things aren't as easy. And I particularly feel that the East German side of things wasn't given its fair share because it is a quarter of our population. But their experience over those 28 or rather 40 years weren't given credit. Okay, so this is interesting, because I'm picking up from all of you this, this sense that it wasn't just the victory of capitalism. I mean, that's kind of what it was immediately. Capitalism wins, communism loses, uh, and Germany is united and free. Okay, great. You're free. You can watch TV from the West. You can travel. That's all wonderful. Capitalism works. We make more money, have more stuff. But now, 50 years later, for the good of society, are you saying we could have had less of a, a victorious uh, approach and more of a, okay, let's look at our challenges, let's look at what we've learned. What do you think? Yeah, I think it, it would have been nice, and I think that's the feeling among a lot of East Germans that felt like, yes, of course, we want the West German mark, we want the currency, we want to buy a car from the West and not the good old Lara that was dying, you know. But at the same time, like, we didn't really kind of sit down together saying like what is good in our western right. kind of society right. what is maybe good also on the communist side you know heavy subsidizing yes you know you know of course well, let me take yeah let me take the good. skeptics okay yeah. come on are you telling me something was good about ddr and communism that you could have kept yeah the thing is it's not about like oh it's the bad commies now taken over but the thing is people had regular lives and they that is not being recognized i think right. that's something so this i think the, the 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 speed of the process was something that people are now feeling a bit uneasy was there more stress and aggressiveness in the western way and is there a, a sense that the eastern way could have been a little more human and family and take a weekend off or was there anything like that or i don't know i think you know we we can look at daycare in east germany and various policies the East German government introduced, but I think we have to be careful about not recognizing the fact that the East German regime was a party dictatorship. Right? Right. It was not a democracy. Right. And uh, the values that we hold dear, I think, in, in Germany today and in the West, those were not values that were shared by the East German government. So I think none of us here would, would like to romanticize because uh, it is a risk. East Germany, you, you could right? romanticize um, the good old days I, and be nostalgic. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly. I think that's really a, a danger. And I think that still plays out somewhat. I think I'm a little more critical than Carolina is. I think in East Germany, yes, um, we, we could have done some things better. But I think we should also recognize how far we've come oh, in yeah. these last 30 years, right? How much wealthier the East is than it was 30 years ago, right? How, how much better the system works than and it And would you say, by ago. and large, people in the former Eastern Germany now, 50 years later, have, have become good capitalists as far as realizing you got to work in order to get stuff. And uh, this is a system that works. Carolina? I think I completely agree. It's a complete success story, uh, basically. So I agree with Torben there. 
And it is probably also hard looking back as like what could have been done. It was, after all, under the impact of something outstanding and in a very short time that something had to be done. However, what I try to remind people of that unification is a euphemism because unification would assume that the two come together ah. to become one. But what actually happened was that conquered. the East Germans, no, it wasn't conquered at all. It was consented to by East Germans by vote. But what they agreed to was maybe more than they gambled for, but because they joined where our constitution, the basic law, applies. So in the West, nothing, literally nothing changes apart from getting more people, while in the East, the whole oh, okay. constitution and regime was So not conquered, down. but subsumed. Is that the word? Well, I would, I would, it's ascension by consent. Yet, yeah. of course, it okay. is a complete change of lives on one side without the one on Holger. the other. Yeah, and I think that's the one critical point about it. Not so much like, oh, are we better off? Can we now buy other goods and stuff? Completely fair game, but... What we, I think, have to always rethink, it is that from one day to the next, your whole state has collapsed. Mm. All the values, all the things that you maybe didn't agree with, you know, mm -hmm. being like a lot of people were opposed to this dictatorship of like no freedom of the press, no freedom of movement. They were happy to be free. But then again, at the same time, everything that you would find normal, like the goods, you know, in the shops, mm. the, the how people interact, everything was gone. And a new system was put in place that people had to learn and relearn. And let's face it, in communist times, a lot of things were bad. But one thing was money was not an issue. You could do little dealings, you could kind of trade things uh, off, it kind of like was under the table economy. But money was not an issue that you had to face. And now money is the, the, the pre, the big thing. If you don't have money, you're basically maybe don't have a house, you know. So it's a more aggressive world now. Hey, Jim in Abilene, that really stoked a lot of conversation. Thank you for your call. Thank you very much, Rick. I hope Thank that you. was I hope that uh, gave you some insights into into the the whole dynamic in Germany. Oh, yes, very much so. That's great. Thanks for your very call. Awesome. Thank you. We're getting updated on Germany with three tour guides from Berlin right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Torben Brown works with berlinperspectives.com. Carolina Marburger writes about Berlin history for berlinlocals.com. And Holger Zimmer is a broadcaster with RBB Culture Radio in Berlin. And Nancy's on the line in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hey, Nancy, have you been uh, thinking about current events in Germany and how that might impact your travels? Uh, I sure have, and I was just wondering how um, Germany's tapestry has changed with the refugee crisis of the past couple of years. And have they, uh, the refugees assimilated into the workforce? Have they found a purpose in life and brought their trades, opened up cafes with their kind of food, uh, with the help of social workers? Or conversely, is there an uptick in crime, more homelessness, more litter, and are solo women travelers safe? Wow, those are good questions. Now that's, uh, you know, when you when you are on the receiving end of a lot of media, there's a lot of questions, and uh, it would be nice to actually be there in, in the middle of all of this and see how the, quote, crisis is doing. I think the word crisis itself is interesting. Uh, Carolina, what's your take on uh, the mosaic of German uh, society today after this influx of refugees? Uh, well, thanks for the good, interesting question, because indeed, I think it is fooled by so much information and very little knowledge on the ground. Uh, for one million refugees sounds like a lot. But right. then when you are actually there, everyone's like, where are they? Now, because, yes, there how, how is many people in Germany altogether? A million, a million yeah. refugees among 80 million So one Germans. percent, uh, yes. essentially one yes. percent of society yes. is added. Mm -hmm. And these would be uh, 
poor people ready to work hard, I suppose, looking for a new life. I think the most important thing is that also the mosaic of refugees is a mosaic. So there is a lot of um, those that we would think are poor immigrants that have difficulties to integrate. I, I know refugees that are graphic designers right. that actually work as self-employed graphic designers while in Berlin. Ah, so this is not great. the image you have, but that is a refugee from Syria, from Damascus, that is a graphic designer working in Berlin now. Does a highly educated refugee coming in from a place like Syria, do they come in with nothing or do they come in with their family wealth? No, in this case, he, he came with, well, a little amount and basically started to try to get to work. And yes, he was so funded by the government in the beginning. But he came in with skills. Yes, right. quite so. Corbin, what's your take on, on the whole refugee situation today? I, I agree with Carolina that it's not something that we, we notice in our everyday lives, right? So I think that's a that's a concern that you needn't have when you travel to Germany. You won't notice the fact that you have this influx of refugees, except there is, in a city like Berlin, there are more cafes and restaurants and fast food options where you can get Arab food. That's, uh, I think, a, a positive. And I think in, in Germany, we're, uh, we're trying to figure things out. We're trying to figure out how best to integrate these refugees. Right. I think we're doing this in a more pragmatic way than perhaps we did some years ago. Now, when you when you think of a million refugees coming in, if there's one uh, rape or one groping or one murder or something, it's going to be all over the news. Holger, what is the the image and what is the reality of uh, safety of Germans vis-a-vis all the refugees that came in? Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you like the exact like kind of facts and figures here, but what I do believe though is that you know in the in the perception of people like you know average jump I think people are things are changing and people are feeling a bit more uneasy I would I would still think that is the case maybe not in every city I mean big cities are big cities anyway but if you go to villages and it's not to say that you know people that you see are are criminals or are bad in any shape or form but I think the perception of people have even in smaller places where you see suddenly much more people with a different skin color with a different kind of attitude or different kind of fashion uh, you know uh, walking around, that gives a bit of a feeling like, okay, what's what's happening? Because what's, there is how, a, a sort of do? parallel world, even in a small town, uh, and you've got the, the refugees will hang out together and the locals will wonder where, where what's their place. But even though there is also on a local level support and saying, listen, you are here now, you're new, how can we help you? You know, how can we all make you feel Germany, at home? All over Germany, all over Germany, I saw big banners that just say, welcome refugees, here's your lunch, you know, this kind of people standing by in a kind of solidarity. Uh, but there are challenges presented by that. Carolina? Um, it is very interesting. I went to, uh, with a student group, I went to some local councils in Berlin to talk to people that are actually involved in dealing with that influx of migrants, but refugees too. So they cover both. And it was very interesting that there's there's best practice and there's problems. It would be wrong to deny mm-hmm. that there are problems sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting that those that are the most successful, of course, they bring the community in. So they bring the community, the football club, Union Berlin. They actually, the moment that they are settling in there, they try to get the network of churches, of clubs, uh, and all those things to, to actually be involved. That is the best way to integrate. I, sadly, that is not happening everywhere, of course. So you need that infrastructure that, that they can tap in. If they don't, of course, they will create those parallel You know, there's the, there's the compassion of, of, you know, give these people a roof over their head and a chance to work and get ahead. And then there's the reality that it makes your society a little more complicated and good for Germany for being a leader in grappling with that because it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a harsh reality and it's something that, that we need to deal with in the United States and, and Europe is dealing with also. Nancy, thanks for your call. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with three German guides, Holger Zimmer, Torben Brown, and Carolina Marburger, about issues in Germany. Thanks all very much for being here. Thank you. Thanks Thank a lot you. for having us. Happy to see you. Bleibe recht to stay. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Im cabaret, au cabaret, du cabaret. Before the Iron Curtain fell and Soviet communism fell apart, some of the chinks in its armor came courtesy of the ship workers in Poland's port city of Gdansk. Today, Gdansk is eager to tell its stories and is becoming a visitor destination on the rise for people looking for great food, culture, and history, and maybe even a sandy beach. Guides to Gdansk tell us more next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. The city that started Poland's Solidarity Movement is coming into its own today as an attractive visitor destination. The cosmopolitan port city of Gdansk has been opening new museums and spiffing up its nightlife as it challenges Warsaw and Krakow for visitors. Virtually everything you'll want to do or see is within a 20-minute walk of the old town. And yet there's plenty more to enjoy on easy day trips, including summer beach resorts on the Baltic. To tell us more, we're joined by Polish tour guide Beata Makomas and by Cameron Hewitt. Cameron is my co-author and main researcher on Poland for the Rick Steves Eastern Europe Guidebooks. They'll take your calls in just a bit at 877-333-7425. Cameron, Beata, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Cameron, I know when when we were writing the guidebook chapter to Poland, Gdansk really is unique from a history point of view. What does Little Gdansk have to do so much with big history? Well, the first thing you have to think about is it's uh, on the northern Baltic coast, so it's sort of Poland's outlet to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So the main river, the trading river, the Vistula River flows out through Gdansk. So it's kind of the gateway to Poland for everyone else. And that makes it very cosmopolitan, very historic. It was always a big shipping city, trading city. It was part of the Hanseatic League of a northern European trading city. So it has that kind of heritage of beautiful, colorful, wealthy burgers mansions that you might find in Bergen or Amsterdam or something like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I see pictures of Hanseatic towns and it's Lübeck in Germany is that way. And they're big stately medieval powerhouses from a trade point of view. And back then, Gdansk was right in the same league with those, uh, those other famous big cities. So when we think about Poland, it's one of the bigger countries in Europe. And uh, of course, Warsaw is the massive central capital city. The historic capital in a lot of ways was Krakow, which is closer to Prague and, and what people think of as Eastern Europe. And Gdansk is really at the far end of that. It's kind of the maritime capital, the shipping capital. And really northern-looking. It feels almost Scandinavian, sometimes more than Polish. B, when we think of Gdansk, it's a little confusing to me because it was also called Danzig. What's the Danzig-Gdansk name situation? Where does that come from? Well, that's from the part of the his Polish history when Gdansk belonged to Germany. And because it was right on the coast of the sea that doesn't really freeze in the winter, it's been always a spot that wanted to be owned by many. Russia, Poland, Germany just so happened that Gdańsk has been going back and forth between Poland and Germany. Okay, um, so when it's in German hands, it's Danzig. It's Danzig, yes. And when it's in Polish hands... It's Gdańsk. Gdańsk. Let's talk more about its history, World War II essentially starting there. What, what happened in Gdańsk at the beginning of World War II? September 1st, um, 1939, 4 a.m. Schleswig-Holstein, a German ship was ducked right off of the coast there by Westerplatte. And that night, German soldiers attacked from the sea and from the land. 
German soldiers attacked uh, uh, Gdansk. Gdansk. Yes. Okay. Gdansk was the first major spot where fights took place. And a very famous battle was battle of the post office people, people who work at the post office in Gdansk and tried to protect that building for three days. Unfortunately, they fell. But to this day, it's almost to us like Alamo, uh, like to Alamo. Americans, right? I mean, they fought fight that they, they knew going to lose. And they yes. were going to lose because you're up against Germany, which is much, much stronger. Right. Yeah. right. They were the only one prepared in that war, really. They planned that ahead of time. And they took us by complete surprise. So that was the first invasion of Hitler. Yes. Cameron, you mentioned also this was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. And there's a memorial to that. That's right. And uh, there's a place in Gdansk where you look in one direction and you can see Vesterplatte, where the first shots of World War II were fired. And then you look in the other direction and you can see the cranes of the shipyards, which is where in 1980 they had the solidarity strikes. It was the first successful trade union strike against the Soviet bloc regime. Successful because after a couple of weeks of protest, they actually agreed to some of the workers' demands. And a lot of people credit that protest, the solidarity protest, with being the beginning of the end of communism in Europe. Because I remember everybody was holding their breath. What's the Soviet Union going to do? Will they let this happen and then it'll happen elsewhere or will they clamp down on it? Right. And it took a good nine years for it to trickle out across the rest of Europe and there were fits and starts. But this was the first time that there were successful strikes against the Soviets. And that was where we have that iconic image of Lech Valenza climbing onto the top and rallying the workers. That's right. Lech Valenza was a shipyard electrician. He'd already been fired from the shipyards because he was kind of a rabble rouser. And when he saw that there was a protest going on, he said, geez, I got to go be with my people. So he famously went and scaled the fence to get into the shipyards and became the leader of this uprising. And then he was the spokesperson and he was the negotiator. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Beata Makomis and Cameron Hewitt about Gdansk in Poland. You know, Cameron, we're talking about all this amazing history from this one town. There's some impressive new museums or some very impressive museums to learn more about that when we go to Gdansk. Can you give a review of the important history museums? Yeah, there are three fantastic museums that have all just opened in the last few years, and they're all just cutting edge, top of the line. They do a beautiful job of telling their story. The first one is the European Solidarity Center, which is built right in those shipyards where uh, Lech Wałęsa had his protest, the Solidarity Protests, and it just beautifully tells the story of the protests from the very beginning to the very end and the, and the results. Mm-hmm. Uh, the result was the first free elections in Poland. The second one, also in Gdansk, is a World War II museum that just opened in 2017. That one's a little tricky. It's, a, it's really well done, uh, top of the line, high tech, uh, but the content has been fiddled with by the government. We'll talk about that maybe a little later. But uh, to round out the three great new museums in this area, a couple towns over uh, the town of Gdynia, which is a half-hour train ride away, there's a fantastic immigration museum that also just opened recently in, in the terminal building where a lot of Polish people emigrated to the United States or Canada. And it's, again, high-tech, a beautiful museum that tells the story of Polish immigrants to the New World. Because when you think about why we care about Poland in America, why we care about Italy, why we care about Sweden and Ireland, so much of it is because there was a diaspora from those countries during hard times, and a lot of people left Poland, and there's a museum there near Gdansk for people to learn about that. I remember, uh, B, when I went to the Museum of the Solidarity, just outside of those gates that we all remember from those heady times, there's an amazing memorial built there by the workers. That must be close to the hearts of people who were there and, and witnessed that. Can you describe that memorial that's in the square? Yes, that memorial is dedicated to the fallen shipyard workers of 1970. So they were memorialized in the 1980s, and just to remember them was quite a strong statement, Correct. I think. And that shows that the movement, Solidarity Movement, was built on something bigger, 
on people fighting way before 1980. Now, Cameron, you mentioned that the World War II Museum is now a political hot potato because why? I mean, because everybody gets to tell history the way they want to. What's going on in Poland? Well, in 2017 in Gdansk, in this beautiful purpose-built building, they they opened the Museum of the Second World War, uh, which uh, had a very ambitious vision to be a museum about Poland's experience, but also more broadly, the global experience of World War II. Around that same time, uh, the government decided to remove the director of the museum just before it opened and replaced him with a party loyalist. And a lot of critics observed that they changed the exhibits quite heavily to slant it a little bit more towards a more purely patriotic Polish perspective. It was always a Polish perspective, but there was some controversial changes that were made. And I went and toured it for the first time a few months ago. And I could, having known the story, I could tell a few cases where, okay, this feels like they kind of ad- adapted this or they've wedged this in. And so I was I was disappointed as someone who, who reviews uh, museums for a living. I thought it could have been maybe the great World War II museum in all of Europe. It mm. was spectacular. But you can see where they've kind of taken some liberties. And there's sort of shadows of the of the original exhibit that are still really beautiful. And then other things that just feel kind of like taking a, a sharp turn away from what it could have been. So this museum that had so much potential to be a great destination kind of museum was envisioned before the far right-wing government established itself. And uh, suddenly, a centrist, more balanced approach to World War II became a uh, tool for a, a nationalistic far right government. Exactly, yeah. So a a, a trained historian director of the museum was replaced by a party loyalist and and was given, it would seem, was given instructions to to adapt the exhibits to make them more more purely patriotic. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with two experts on Poland, Beata Makamis and Cameron Hewitt, and we're talking about Gdansk, the port in the far north that really is an up-and-coming destination for travelers. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Nicole's given us a ring from Victoria in British Columbia. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Those museums sound, sound really interesting to visit um, during the day, and I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for things to do in the evening. Good question. B, if we're there in the evening, after dark in Gdansk, what do people do? Well, that depends what age bracket you're in. Let's say you're young and crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can stay in Gdańsk, lots of clubs, bars. You can uh, take a tram or city bus a little bit further outside of uh, the old part of town into the shipyards where more grungy kind of parties take place. So this is edgy grunge nightlife. Right, where you have bars that were built in shipping containers with some human-made beaches and, you know, partying outside or you could go to Sopot. And the good thing about Sopot is that um, even though you do have to take the SKM, which is the fast uh, train, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to get there. And the train uh, goes back and forth between Gdansk and Sopot every hour in the middle of the night. Nicole, there's plenty to do after dark in Gdansk. Thanks for your call. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Take care. One more idea, Rick, uh, after dark, something a little more sedate. They've done a really beautiful job of developing the riverfront embankments. This was this great shipping city, so there's a river running right through the middle. Mm -hmm. And there's an old island called Granary Island where there were 400 medieval granaries that were bombed out in World War II. So it was basically a deserted war zone right up until a few years ago. And now they're completely redeveloping that, and they're adding embankments along the side of it, and they're connecting it to the other side of the river with a couple of new pedestrian bridges. So even just in the last two or three years, it's becoming an even more appealing place just to go out strolling after dark. There's a beautiful uh, philharmonic building that's right oh. there along the embankment. So there's, there's a lot of culture and kind of general evening bustle in Gdansk these days. 
you know, I think there's that energy that you feel in what was run down Eastern Europe. There's the scars of World War II that are actually turned into something kind of trendy and edgy and creative. Uh, districts like that, wherever you go in Eastern Europe and, and in Gdansk, certainly. Uh, I know, B, that you're interested in the uh, the street art, and there's a, a lot of murals in a town nearby. Can you talk a well, little bit about that? Yes, it's actually uh, not a town, it's just a neighborhood, uh-huh. a Zaspa neighborhood. Zaspa, so that's Z-A-S-P-A. Correct. Zaspa. Mm-hmm. It's a neighborhood like any neighborhood anywhere in Poland. You have those big communist-style blocks, right. uh, buildings made out of uh, concrete blocks, and what well, what to do with that? How to beautify it? Well, let's organize international contest. And between the 19, uh, 2009 and 2016, people from all over the world would come artists. and paint artists, yeah. paint murals on the side of those tall buildings, often 10, 11 story tall. Whoa. And you have about 60 of them. Oh, my goodness. So it's like you could make a tour of these. Right. And you can even download a free map to see all of them. It takes about an hour to two hours. Depends okay. how fast you're walking. So you see different themes, different colors, no political agenda in that. These are great opportunities to go to a city most of us have never thought of and see a lot of happening now sort of ways that people are creative and uh, turning their city into something that has their personality. We're exploring Poland's seaside city of Gdańsk right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are Polish-born tour guide Beata Makomis and Cameron Hewitt, who co-authors the Rick Steves Guidebooks to Eastern Europe. Elinda's calling in from Deerfield Beach in Florida. Elinda, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, everyone. It's been fascinating listening what you're saying about the museum. So we visited a few years ago, so we did not see the museum that opened last year. But my question is that when we were in Gdansk, uh, every day it was pouring rain. And um, we had my mother with us who had to be in a wheelchair, and we were wheeling over uh, cobblestone streets in oh. in the rain. And what I'd like to know, we went in June, when is a good time to visit when it would not be such a rainy season? Well, Beata, you grew up in that area. What about the climate? What about the weather? First of all, I want to say I'm sorry you experienced the rain in June, because that's really not typical for this part of Poland. Uh, usually our summers, uh, June, July, and August, are pretty nice and warm. So I would say in the middle of the summer I would be the best time to go. But I hope that even though you had the rain there in Gdańsk, you still get to do um, lots of fun things and you were able to experience the city. Yeah, that's too bad. It, I mean, the weather is, especially these days, the weather is unpredictable. I, I find in much of uh, that part of Europe you have humid times in the summer and it builds up and you have a rainstorm in the afternoon but it changes quickly, and I just think you need to be dressed for whatever weather you encounter. Thanks, Alinda. Thank you. I guess we just had bad luck. You had bad luck. (laughs) Vieta, there's so much going on with history, and and the city is getting spiffed up for visitors. What about the cultural scene? Do people go to enjoy music and theater as travelers in Gdansk? Oh, absolutely. If you're on a budget, stay in in the city center, and you'll see a ton of street musicians. If you have a little bit of more money, you can go to Symphony there in Gdańsk or visit uh, Shakespeare Theater, which is not just by name, but the theater itself was designed and built the way uh, British uh, theater was back then oh, built. In the of, round? Uh, yes, the round with theater. the balconies around, oh, nice. uh, with the stage in the center. So definitely a place to visit and see a play. Sounds like Gdansk is doing a lot to rival Warsaw and Krakow as one of the top three cities to see in Poland. Let's just finish off talking a little bit about food. 
because uh, all this sightseeing is going to stoke our appetite and we want to eat smartly. What are your tips, Beata, for uh, eating well in Gdansk? Eating well, in my opinion, doesn't mean you have to spend a lot of money. You can start with street vendors. Food is always fresh and is delicious. My favorite food from the street would be a piece of freshly made bread, thick piece of bread with a spread on it. Uh, I'm not sure if I should mention what it's in that spread, but it's made out of pig's fat with bacon and onions. And really, that's one of my most favorite things to eat. What's the name? Smollett? Smollett. Smollett. Yes. And this is street food? That's a street food, yes. All right. And then you can also have a zapikanka. Mm -hmm. If you want to be more sophisticated, you can go to Milk Bar, which is uh, very affordable. And you basically eat the food that I cook at home. And zapi, what was that? Zapikanka. What does that mean? um, It's a baguette with mushrooms and onions and melted cheese on top. Sounds good. It looks kind of like a French bread pizza, but it's a it's a really trendy thing. Used to be kind of a hardship food. Uh, it was kind of a, an easy fast food people could get out, and now it's becoming like an art form all over Poland. But now they're putting all these crazy international toppings on them too. It's kind of a fun a fun uh, a new trend. Very important. And you can, even if you don't remember the name, you can see it's sort of like a baguette pizza. Exactly. Thing, and it's to go. It's sold to take away. Yes. And of course, Always. milk bars make comeback. It used to be for working people who came home late to go and eat there or for students. Uh-huh. Now, milk bars are becoming more popular because the Western type of food uh, came in to Poland in 1989, and that started pushing away the foods that we grew up eating that was cooked by our parents and grandparents. Now we're rediscovering how really ah, the food was back then. The rise of the milk the, bar, the return right, of the milk r- bar. Right, and the food is simple yet delicious. The menu changes, depends on the season and what's available. And then, of course, you have the restaurants where the Polish cuisine is coming back, it's returning to. And we're not talking Polish fusion. No, the good Polish food, like pierogi, for example, made in a hundred different ways, steamed, baked, boiled in a hot water, so many different uh, fillings inside. Nice. Cameron, as an American traveling in Poland, what do you remember as the uh, rewarding dimension of eating? Well, one of the things is, as Beata is saying, it's really inexpensive. You can have yeah. amazing traditional food for not too much money. All the traditional hearty Polish food she's talking about, it's true. You can get them now, and they're, they're doing them in a really, not exactly a fusion way or an international way, but an upmarket way. There's a great uh, little pierogi bar I went to in Gdansk on this last trip, Mandu. And it's tucked in this back street near the train station, no tourists anywhere nearby. And it's just this beautiful little place that's almost entirely for locals and, uh, you know, international foodies who've done their homework. And you have to wait for a table, but it's this beautiful menu of different kinds of pierogi prepared all different ways with different fillings. So it's really fun to go to Gdansk and get off the main street and find some back streets areas that are a little more trendy and a little more experimental while still giving respect to the Polish tradition. Nice. Beata McComas, Cameron Hewitt, thank you so much for giving us a better appreciation of a city we should all be mindful of next time we plan a trip to Poland, Gdansk. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmura Hall. We get website support from Amara Kipnacone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand. Look for our show notes. They're updated each week at ricksteves.com radio. 
And we'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.